Uh, if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to James chapter 5. Book of James chapter 5, that's going to be on page 853, if you want to use one of the Bibles we've provided. James chapter 5, all the way towards the back of the Bible, and kind of keep a little finger bookmark there for a moment, if you don't mind. So every parent faces a uh, decision with respect to their children, a question, and it's one of them is, how old do my kids need to be before I leave them home alone? How old do they have to be before I leave them home alone? My wife and I have two boys, and last weekend we had some dear friends visiting us from out of town, and they wanted to go on a, on a long hike on Saturday morning. Now, unfortunately, my youngest son was sick, my eldest son was still on crutches, and my wife was away at, at a funeral for a distant relative. So I had to make this tough decision, and I made the decision to, to leave them, leave them at home, leave the boys home for a day. Now, what do you think? Our boys are six and eight years old. I left them at home for the day. What do you think? I should say they're a mature six and eight. I'm just kidding. They're 12 and 14 years old. But I received a lot of judgy looks. I just want to point that out. Still receiving a few. Now, I will say, though, while I was away, uh, my 12-year-old nearly had to deal with something that was a bit uh, beyond his age. Uh, someone knocked at the door, and who else was there but a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses. And if you forget, and sometimes I get confused between Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, both like to uh, darken our door from time to time. But besides that, Mormons believe that uh, salvation is a process of becoming a god and inheriting your own planet. Jehovah's Witnesses uh, are the ones who deny the deity of Jesus and typically reject blood transfusions. That's kind of what they're known for. Thankfully, these Jehovah's Witnesses did not try to uh, proselytize my 12-year-old. They simply dropped off this pamphlet here, and they left. And I was concerned about the pamphlet, uh, mostly because of the 1970s artwork on it, if you can see it right here. But, but here it is. Uh, but I have to say they wisely, on this pamphlet, and very simply asked one of life's most important questions, and that is, will suffering ever end? Will suffering ever end? And you can see bullet points below it. There are different questions. Yes, no, or maybe. Will suffering ever end? How would you answer this question? Will suffering ever end without also ending us in the process? This question, I think, is timely and a little more challenging to answer after the events of last weekend. We had two more mass shootings in our country. Um, the one in El Paso killed 20 people, over 20 people, and injured far more. Um, the investigation also revealed that the mass shooting was, was race-motivated um, and, and done by a white supremacist. Now, the FBI defines a mass shooting as one in which four or more people are killed, not including the shooter. So as of this time last week, there have been more mass killings in the United States in 2019 than there have been days in the year. Now, Interviews, reactions, social media had this constant refrain coming, which was, will this ever end? When will this end? 
And I feel like sometimes this kind of thing and just suffering in general can feel sort of distant to me. Like I just can sort of distance myself from it. And, and part of that is that my family and I, we lived in another country for almost nine years. And, and admittedly, it was a pretty safe country. But my, you know, my eldest experienced four school lockdowns in our first four months moving back to the United States. He saw his first SWAT team in action. He viewed his first police sniper. And thankfully, you know, nothing happened. And the, the authorities, the schools, they did everything they could. They did a great job. But it just, it just reminded me, and those feelings came back even last weekend, that suffering is always nearer than we think or than we would like to believe. And some of you may be experiencing some form of suffering now. So the question again, will, will it ever end? And as followers of Jesus, we can answer this question with conviction as we're going to see this morning in James chapter 5. As we continue our series wholehearted, we're going to read from James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is God's word. So the message in a nutshell this morning is going to be this. If you remember nothing else, remember this. Our message in a nutshell is trust Jesus that your best is always yet to come. Trust Jesus that your best is always yet to come. Specifically, your best is the return of Jesus, who will right all the wrongs on this earth and right all the wrongs in us. After Jesus died and was buried, he rose from the dead, and for 40 days appeared to over 500 people, including his disciples. And he then ascended into heaven so that he could send God the Holy Spirit to, to forever live inside and empower all those who would trust him. So immediately after Jesus ascends into heaven, two angels appear and they say to the, to the disciples, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. He will, he will come back in the same way you saw him go into heaven. And so these disciples pass on what they learn from these angels to every follower of Jesus. So they get to know what James refers to twice in our passage as the coming of the Lord, right? Jesus will come back in the same way you saw him go. So they remember this is the coming of the Lord. And so James assumes, as you can tell from this passage, that his readers know about the second coming of Jesus. But, but you may be new to Christianity or you may be new to church or you may just have kind of forgotten some of this stuff. So here are some basics about the the return of Jesus, his second coming. Number one, Jesus returns so that he, will, he can be with us forever. Parousia, the, 
that's the Greek word for come, Jesus come, means literally presence. So Jesus wants to make his presence with us fully again. He returns to be with us forever. Number two, he will bring heaven to earth with him. Jesus will bring heaven to earth with him. We're told in Revelation 21, I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. So there's this image that we're given revelation of the, the new Jerusalem, heaven coming down, and a seeing heaven come down so God can be with us forever. Number three, Jesus will right all the wrongs on this earth and in us. And number four, his return is at hand, as we see here in James 5. It can happen in any moment. So again, Jesus returns to be with us forever. He's going to bring heaven to earth with him. He comes to right all the wrongs. His return is at hand. And James here exhorts us in these, these five verses to, to wait for his imminent return. Now in this passage, James seems to be essentially saying, okay, so wait. In fact, all you really can do is wait. Then he gives us a few examples of those who have waited well. But in the middle, he seems to randomly insert this one verse. I want you to look at this with me because it's important. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. I like to call this a next verser. Next verses are those verses we read in Scripture, and you nod your head like a good Christian, like, yes, yes. Because the verse does seem to belong in the Bible, but you can't really figure out how it fits in with what you're reading. And so you just sort of nod your head like, oh, yeah, 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 and you go on to the next verse, right? And I feel like this, when you first read here in James chapter 5, this is one of these verses. James is saying, okay, wait well, and don't grumble against one another, you might be judged. Here are a few examples of people who waited well. And you're like, what's this about the grumbling and the judge and that sort of thing? But just uh, some study and some reflection, I actually believe that this verse about grumbling provides the key to how we can wait well for God to act, for God to move, for God to restore our lives when we're suffering. Let's think about this together. When we grumble, when we place the frustration of our pain upon a loved one, or upon a fellow family member in Christ, what is it that we're doing when we grumble to them? What is it exactly that we're doing? I think we're asking them to deliver us from our pain, right? We're asking this, them to, to take our pain away. Now, sometimes transferring our pain onto someone else, is, it's very direct, but usually it's an indirect thing, isn't it? We walk in the door and we say things like, why is the bedroom so messy? Or why haven't the kids done the dishes? What we're really saying deep down oftentimes is make my life orderly because there's only chaos otherwise. Right? Or maybe you've experienced mistreatment or injustice at your place of work. And after work, you head to a church growth group. Sometimes we, we transfer our pain onto people who love us and we love, maybe by being disagreeable or contrarian. You just have a hardness about you. Why would we be disagreeable with someone we love and loves us? Right? We, are, we are seeking affirmation from them when there's only condemnation in our hurt. Right? We, we want them to affirm us. We want them 
to relieve us of our pain. But friends, we have only one deliverer who can forever deliver us from pain and suffering, and that is Jesus Christ. Instead, when we, when we put our pain and our heartache on, on loved ones and fellow family members, we are trusting them to deliver us, asking them to be our deliverer. That helps us make sense of why James talks about the judge and being judged in verse 9, right? That sounds kind of harsh, but the more we transfer our trust to other people and transfer our trust to other things, even good things, to deliver us from pain, to mask our pain, help us escape from pain, the further we endanger ourselves towards judgment, right? Because there is one God, there's one deliverer. He wants to be the one and is the only one who can deliver us from pain and suffering. So is that, if that's the case, how then can we give voice to our pain? What are we supposed to do? Are we just supposed to trust God and shut up until Jesus returns? If you could, hold on to that question. Hold on, because I think James himself addresses it here in our passage through one of his three examples of trusting well in the midst of suffering. James gives us three examples of trust in the midst of suffering. Trusting well. A man named Job, a group of men, the prophets, and a farmer. And each of these three examples are, are super instructive on helping us wait well and trust God well in the midst of suffering. But for the sake of time, our collective sanity, <laughs> your attention span, and frankly mine, I'm going to focus on one of these three examples, okay? And it's going to be the one James spills most of his ink on, and that is the person Job. Job is the one that James points to as the one who trusts God that he will make the wrong things right in his life. He, he trusts and he waits well because he trusts God to make wrong things right in his life. Let me give you a quick summary of Job's story because you may not be familiar with it. Job is this really, really old, 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 Old Testament figure. He's a man who does what is right in his life. He loves God with all his heart. And one day, he loses all his wealth, all his livestock is stolen. That same day, same day, he loses all of his kids. Every son of his, every daughter is killed. Soon after, he loses his health as well. Now, Job loves God more than anything on earth, and yet everything of earthly value is taken from Job. Now, what neither Job, his wife, nor his friends are privy to is that behind the scenes, Satan has approached God. Okay? Now, Satan claims that Job's love for God it's a mercenary love. In other words, Job loves God because of the good life that God has given him. And, and Satan says, look, Job loves you. He's righteous because you've given him so much. So wanting to test Job, to wanting to refine Job's love and trust, God allows Satan to afflict Job. And, and the rest of the book, the book of Job, a lot of it is Job's friends dropping in to counsel him, to comfort him, mostly saying things like, Job, there has to be a reason for your suffering. Or Job, have you examined your life to see if there's anything offensive or wrong that you've done towards God? 
that sound familiar to you? It should. It sounds like church people counsel, right? If you've ever gone through suffering, at some point, people, and I, and I, and I say this, well-meaning people, what, loving people will say these very two things, right? Have you looked at your life? Number one. There must be a reason, number two. And you hear that, and so often, if I can be honest, it sounds very shallow and very empty when you're going through some of the deepest heartache in your life. And with Job, we the readers know that Job suffered not despite his goodness, but because of it. He suffered because he was good. How does Job respond? How does Job respond to his suffering? It's interesting because in our passage this morning, James, he commends Job. He praises Job, doesn't he? Look at this again in verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. If you're familiar with Job's story, would steadfastness be the adjective you'd use to describe him? Probably not. <laughs> it's weird because the only thing Job does steadfastly for about 30 chapters is complain and grumble against God. Exactly. The key to voicing our pain is who we voice it to. T time and again, Job steadfastly complains to and against God. There's tons of times this happens. I'm going to just mention a couple instructive ones. Job 10, 1 through 2, it's going to be up here on the screen. This is Job speaking. He says, I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will say to God, let me know why you contend against me. Are good Christians supposed to say this? Absolutely. Job 21, verse 4. As for me, is my complaint against man? It's a rhetorical question Job's asking. The answer is no. He's not complaining to or against his friends. And James views this as an act of steadfast trust. Job steadfastly, continually brings his grumbling to and against God instead of to and against his friends. And this is so right, and we see this in the Psalms as well, voicing pain to God. It didn't matter the degree or the pain of your suffering. We see the psalmist grumbling to God about being in imminent physical danger under the threat of death. Other times we see the psalmist complain about being gossiped about, right? Different degrees of pain, all legitimate to voice that pain to God who loves you and cares for you. I'm afraid that one trick some of us have learned, and I've learned in church culture, is to suppress our complaining by comparing sort of our measly suffering to what we call real suffering, right? Our rationale goes something like this. Like, how can I grumble when I consider the loved ones of those gunned down in El Paso? Right, you know, I'm, I am so blessed compared to those families and those friends and those people. And, and A, that doesn't work to do something about our pain, right? It doesn't, it doesn't do anything for the legitimate pain and suffering that we're experiencing. And B, I don't think God ranks suffering. Like, I don't think he has a scale in which he, he's going to give more blessing based on the, the suffering or care more based on the degree in which you're suffering. 
He loves us, and the last thing he wants us to do is to suppress our pain or think it's not important enough. He sees, he knows, he cares, so he wants us to share it with him before we put our pain on someone else, asking them to deliver us from it. Not that we, let me make this clear, can't confide in safe friends and brothers and sisters in Christ, absolutely, but if that's all we do, we begin to transfer our trust to them, asking them, in effect, to deliver us from our pain, to be our deliverers. Let me say it bluntly. Who we primarily grumble to, who we primarily grumble to says a lot about in whom our faith truly rests. Who we grumble to says a lot about in whom our faith truly rests. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So, so what does it mean to come to him, but to come to him with all of who we are, our deepest grumblings, our darkest pain? So Job, he never finds out why. God never tells Job or us his purpose for Job's suffering. It's like a 40-some chapter book, and God speaks at the end for quite a while. Never mentions, this is Job is why, this Job is why you've suffered. So why then does James say with respect to Job in verse 11, you have seen the purpose of the Lord? Now, frankly, because I think, and you can trust your Bibles, this is, but in this particular case, I think purpose is a mistranslation. The original Greek word, telos, can be translated either purpose or end, as in the end result. So the why or the end result of something. And other translations like the NIV use the latter. I agree with those. But we never find out the purpose of Job's suffering. We do, however, get to see the end result of his suffering. We see that the Lord is indeed great, uh, compassionate and merciful, as we read in verse 11. God, in Job's life, makes wrong things right again. The story of Job ends with God restoring to Job all that he previously possessed. Seven new sons, seven new daughters, twice the amount of possessions. And his health, Job lived, Job lived for 140 years. 140. Do you know anyone who lives to 140? He got to be, see his great-great-grandchildren. And to top it all off, he gets to speak with the living God. For Job, his best was yet to come as God righted every wrong in his story. Friends, in Jesus, God can be trusted to, to right every wrong in our story also. We are, we are promised a renewed creation, no more sorrow, no more tears, only light and goodness forever. And the good things we already love on earth they're not going to be obliterated because heaven is coming to earth, as we read in Revelation, right? Clear ocean, blue-ridged mountains, flowing rivers, laughter at a good joke, right? The smile on someone you've never before met, the thrill of learning something new. These things aren't going to be obliterated but perfected in Jesus Christ and to top it all off, getting to speak with God, but for us, face to face. So, 
your suffering. Hold on, friends, and trust that, trust Jesus, that your best is always yet to come. You know, Jesus' return, it's like the great equalizer, isn't it? Just like grace is the great equalizer. No matter how hard, how dry, how low, how draining your life has become, you can trust that it will end well with Jesus. On the other hand, no matter how good your life currently is, your best is still yet to come also. So no matter where you're at with Jesus, it's always going to get better. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you will one day return. Your coming is at hand. Your return to to right all the wrongs in this earth and to right the wrongs in us. And we're encouraged to wait for that day, but we're challenged by how to wait well. I confess, Lord, that too often I let my pain and my suffering spill out onto others, others who love me and whom I love, brothers and sisters in Christ, friends. I'm asking them to deliver me from my pain, but I have only one deliverer. So I pray this morning, Father, that, that more of us who've never trusted Jesus or some who have would again transfer our trust to you, Jesus, to be our deliverer, to be the one, the only one who can right every wrong in our life, the one who can take our complaints, who, can, who wants us to voice to him our grumblings and our pain. Help us voice those things to you because that's what it means to be in a relationship with you. We say all this and ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.